this was a booming church. I mean, this church had a big name. This church had a good name. To put it in 21st century terms, if you went to the city of Sardis and you said, hey, uh, I'm looking for a good church. Oh, I know the first church, first Sardis. That's where you want to go. It's a great church. They have a marvelous ministry there. They're a booming church. That's where you want to attend. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, and today we move into chapter 3 as we begin a look at the church at Sardis. You may recall that chapters 2 and 3 deal with seven churches in Asia Minor, and Jesus has various messages for the pastors of these churches which he addresses through the Apostle John, who had been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. Each of these churches had unique situations. So, for example, the church at Ephesus had once been fervent and strong for the Lord, and they still were, but they were operating without true love for Jesus Christ. Today, we see the church at Sardis had a great reputation and had numerous members, but we'll also see that really they were a dead church. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. As you can see, the sermon topic this morning is appearance without reality, or what we might call ho-hum Christianity, the kind of Christianity that just yawns in the face of God Almighty, the kind of Christianity where there's no fire, no zeal, no passion, and no enthusiasm for the things of God, for the things that really matter in this life. And unfortunately, that has largely become a picture of American Christianity, a half-hearted church with very little to no influence in the world in which we live. Now, if you're here for the first time, we've been working our way verse by verse through the Revelation, and today we turn the corner into a new chapter, Revelation 3. But we've noted that the term revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis, that means to unveil or to uncover. And so we get the word apocalypse. In some of your Bibles, the title, it doesn't say the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it says the apocalypse, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that's a good title as well. And it's the last book of the Bible, and among other things, it gives us a picture of the final consummation of all things. But it also speaks to where the church is today as he addresses these seven churches. Now, what I find interesting is that a book that literally means revealed or open is a book that is concealed for many, and they find it very difficult to understand. And yet God promises that if we will read it, and hear it, and heed it, that He will bless us for it. Even in that promise, there's a presupposition that you can understand what you are reading so that you can heed it. Now, I must say parenthetically that the book, as the opening verses indicate, were written to God's bondservants. It's written to believers. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord, you're going to have an incredible amount of difficulty even beginning to embrace the book of Revelation because without the Spirit of God living in you as your teacher, He can't help you. But with that said, even as saved people, we must be willing, as Proverbs says, to cry for discernment, to lift our voice for understanding, to search for the meaning of the truth like hidden treasure. Now, if this is your first time here and you weren't here for some of the prior messages, 
I would suggest you download on your phone the Search the Scriptures app at searchthescriptures.org and listen to some of the preliminary messages because they are critical to your understanding, especially the last section of the book when we come to chapter 4. It sounds like you found it, Revelation 3. We want to begin reading now in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There on your note-taking outline in your bulletin, you can see there are three truths concerning the church of Sardis that I want to highlight this morning in your thinking. We begin with Sardis's reputation that is exposed. There's a reputation that they have that is not an accurate rep- reputation, so Jesus exposes their real reputation. Notice again how the letter opens to the angel. We've seen the term is used both of literal angels and other messengers, human messengers, and so we've studied in great detail that this is to the pastor, what we, today we call the senior pastor, to the angel of the church in Sardis right. Now here's a map, if you remember, of the seven churches. And as you can see, Jesus starts here in the lower left-hand corner with Ephesus in this horseshoe-type state, shape. He goes all the way around up to the top of the horseshoe down to Laodicea. We studied first the church at Ephesus. I called it the formal church. Because while they were straight as an arrow doctrinally, they had left, not lost, but left their first love. From Ephesus, we went up the coast a little bit, 35 miles uh, here in the horseshoe, and we came to Smyrna, what I call the fearful church. Jesus commands them, do not be fearful. And of course, this is only one of two churches of which Jesus gives no rebuke but only commends them, only praises them because they were willing to lay their lives down for Christ and for the gospel. From there, we traveled another 50 miles north of Smyrna. And if you were here last time, we came to the church at Pergamum. And I call this the faltering church uh, because they were tolerating, not teaching, but tolerating the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we discussed what that meant and its implications. Then you notice there uh, the fourth church, Thyatira. Do you remember that message? What was it entitled? Jesus or Jezebel there in Thyatira. And we call this a false church. There were some believers in it, but there were a lot of false believers in it. They professed to know God, Titus will say, but by their deeds they deny Him. Today we go another 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, and we come to Sardis, the church at Sardis. And this was a church that was a fruitless church. They had kind of a ho-hum apathy towards God. 
That was not how people perceived them, but they had appearance without reality. Now, let me just say something about the city of Sardis, because we've seen with each of these churches, understanding what the city was like is instrumental to understanding the words that Jesus gave, because sometimes our surroundings can impact and influence what we are really like. Remember, these seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. It's referred to as Asia, not the continent of Asia as we think of it today, but Asia in the first century was a province, today encompassing Turkey, a province within the Roman Empire. Sometimes today we call it Asia Minor. Here's a picture of some of the ancient ruins there in Sardis. Um, it's within a little place called Lydia, and it's the capital of Lydia. It's a very important city in the first century. There were five roads that intersected in this city, which made it propitious for business. It was a city known in this century as a very prosperous place, a place of luxury, but also a place of license and loose living. Um, it was also a military center. If you've ever been to Sardis, it sits way up on top of a hill. On three sides, there are steep cliffs, and there's only one side that they really needed to protect. It's 1,500 feet up on t above the ground. And so they thought it was impregnable, that no one could ever defeat it, that they were totally protected. And that's one of the reasons they prospered for so long. However, six centuries before the Lord Jesus came, some soldiers scaled the walls. They got up through some cracks in the wall, and they made their way to the top. Here's a picture of the uh, fortress that is still there. You can see some of the ancient Roman wall at the top. And again, it sits way up on top of a hill. And so, as it turns out, on six different occasions before Jesus came, different armies, the Persians and the Greeks and so forth, came in and conquered the city. And so there is an appearance of security without really the reality of security. And what was true of the city physically became true of the people in this church spiritually. And so these armies came as a thief in the night. It became a proverbial statement for this particular city. Now, most of us know it, and we will see Jesus use that statement in this context, not in reference to those who are lost, but to those who are saved as a warning that he may come in discipline and in judgment to deal with his people. He also, of course, uses it in the Olivet Discourse, this popular first century proverbial statement to describe his second coming, that to an unbelieving world, he will come like a thief. Paul will say of the church that we are not in darkness, that the day, the day of Christ's return, should overtake us like a thief. But Jesus is going to use it a little bit differently here. Now, with that said, uh, this was a very prosperous city. And uh, there was a king who initially conquered the city. His name was King Croesus. Some of you know the expression, rich is Croesus, meaning you're extremely wealthy. Uh, there was another king that's associated with this city, King Midas, at least in Greek mythology. People debate whether or not he was an actual real king, but supposedly Midas, of course, uh, sought the Greek god and he got his wish that whatever he would touch would turn to gold. You read it as a child, remember? And he soon regretted his wish because every time he touched the food, the food turned to gold and he couldn't eat. 
So the legend goes that he went and he bathed in the river of Pactolus right here in the city of Sardis. And that's why, because for that reason, they had all these gold reserves. This is one of the first cities in the world to mint silver and gold coins. And of course, King Croesus comes in, a very wealthy king. He is known for building one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis, the great temple of Diana, as it's also called there in the city of Ephesus. And he built a smaller version of it here in this particular city. And so ancient records also show that Sardis was not only known for their worship of this god and this the so-called God and this great temple that they built, but they were also known primarily business-wise for the manufacture of garments. And Jesus is going to key off of this theme of garments before we are done. So um, that's important. It's important that we understand this, what they were like, and the fact that they were so wealthy and prosperous, because sometimes wealth becomes a stumbling block to the purposes of God. Moses warned it. He said to the children of Israel, listen, when you go into the land that God promised you and you enjoy cisterns that you didn't dig and you live in houses that you didn't build and you eat the fruit of vineyards that you did not plant, don't forget the Lord your God. Jesus gives similar admonitions in the New Testament. And so it's within this atmosphere that this church begins to fail. Let's read a little bit further here into verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which we saw was defined within the text itself, the seven pastors who are in his hands. So Jesus has his pastors in his hands. That's comforting to me as a pastor. Now, you, if you remember, in the greeting found in the opening verses of the book of Revelation. We read this in Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits. There it is again, what we just read in 3.1 that we read in 1.4. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we've seen in the study of these churches so far that every single church is given a character trait that describes um, the person of the Lord Jesus in the opening verses of the Revelation. And he chooses a particular character trait from that uh, opening dialogue, and he applies it to a church either to commend them or to rebuke them. And so we saw that there's a parallel, and there's only one church that he doesn't do that with, and we're coming to that church very, very soon. Now, if you will notice here in Revelation 1-4, like in Revelation 3-1, the word spirit is capitalized. If you were using the Young's literal translation or the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard, the word spirit is capitalized. Some of the other English translations use a lowercase letter, and they leave it for you to interpret. Well, we interpreted it very carefully, and we saw that they are correct in capitalizing it, that this is indeed a reference to God the Holy Spirit, here described as the seven spirits, that he's not speaking to seven pastors, or for that matter, even seven angels, but in that greeting, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are addressing the church very, very specifically. 
And the idea of the seven spirits of God was an Old Testament idiom. And we looked at some different passages. For instance, here's a chart that is built off of Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where the prophet Isaiah describes the seven attributes and ministries of God the Holy Spirit. He's called there the Spirit of the Lord, who will rest on him, on the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom. He's called the Spirit of understanding. He's called the Spirit of counsel. He's called the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and he's also called the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Likewise, we studied the prophet Zechariah, where a very similar description is used to help us to understand this phrase. Remember, one of the reasons the revelation is locked out to so many people is because in its 404 verses, there are over 300 allusions to the Old Testament. And there's not a single verse that says, Isaiah said, or Zechariah said. It's just assumed that in some respect, you are willing to study it and mine it out and figure it out. Some would say there's 600 or 700 or 800. Well, they're double counting and that's okay because there are parallel texts. But 300 of the 404 verses, that's about 75% are intertwined out of the Old Testament. So remember that occasion, Zechariah the prophet has a vision and the angel of God asks him a question. Let me read it to you. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and the seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it, also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking to me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Now listen to the angel's response. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, Yahweh, to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so he reminds him that these quantities of seven are picturing the Spirit of God Himself, that the seven lamps, the seven spouts, and the two olive trees that continually and habitually feed these lamps are a reminder that God the Holy Spirit is willing and wanting to enable His people. And of course, this is the promise of the new covenant that I'll put my spirit within you, that you'll be able to walk in my ways. And so Jesus selectively takes out of the introduction that's used to describe him here, the seven spirits of God, and he uses it to remind, as we're going to see, this church of a very important point, that while they had the spirit, they were not relying on the spirit. And so again in 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so John is using this Old Testament imagery to describe the spirit of God. And we don't want to miss that this morning. We're not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There is one spirit, but God uses this number for a reason. And numbers are very important in the Bible. God is the God of numbers. Whether it's in chemistry or physics or biology or zoology or whatever discipline you are looking at, 
Numbers are of great significance, and they are great of great significance to God because God is the inventor of numbers, and He is the one as a God of precision who uses numbers. And as we've seen already, numbers in the Bible can be used of a literal count, or it can be used symbolically. For instance, take the number one. Throughout the Bible, the number one is the number of unity because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. The number two throughout the Scripture is the number of witness. And so Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. There is a reason for that. We're admonished in the Scripture that we are not to take an accusation against a brother without at least two witnesses to confirm it. I was in a board meeting recently for a Christian organization for whom I serve, and someone said, I second the motion. There is an affirmation uh, with the number two. The number three is the divine number of God. And so in Revelation 1.8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Who is? That's one. Who was? That's two. And who is to come? That is three. And so virtually every Sunday, we were supposed to do one today, but the person got sick. Um, we baptize in the name, not the names, for God is one, but in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three is the, the divine number of God. We also, we will see throughout the Revelation that six is another important number because it is the number of man. It was on the sixth day, not by accident, that God created man to walk on this earth. When we come to Revelation 13 and verse 18, we will read this. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And we will see that the beast will identify himself with three sixes, to t pretending to be God. In fact, he'll have an unholy trinity that will operate, Satan functioning like the Father, um, we will see the Son functioning like the Antichrist and the false prophet functioning like the Holy Spirit. But this number of six is used three times because the beast will claim to be what Jesus is, the God-man. He will claim to be a human who is absolutely divine and therefore needs to be worshipped. But the number seven referenced here in our text this morning is the number of perfection in Scripture. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits of God is underscoring his omniscience, his omnipresence, his, um, his uh, power over all things, that he is indeed complete and perfect, and he is able as a complete member of the Trinity to meet the needs of the church. And that's something we're going to see this morning that this church needs to hear. Now, that's kind of by way of introduction. Now, with that said, Jesus exposes the reputation of this church on two levels. I want you to notice first, their reputation was that of being alive. We're going to see that this is a sleeping church. And Jesus is going to give this church a wake-up call. With the exception of a few people in this church, this church is basically flatlined. They had a reputation of being alive. Notice, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, 
that you are alive. I know your deeds. We've seen that already, haven't we? Jesus is walking amongst his churches. He is present here today. And if he were to walk up and down these aisles, what kind of deeds would he have observed that we've done this week or even this morning? Are they for his honor and glory or they are to our shame or our own self-centeredness? I know your deeds. He knows his church. I know your deeds that you have a name, onima. It's a Greek word that means a label. You have a name, you have a label that you are alive. But appearances can be deceiving. You can have appearance without reality. When I was in college, I went with my dad to uh, London and uh, we spent a little bit of time there and he had a, a meeting uh, in ophthalmology, and on one Sunday when he was in a meeting, I went to the Westminster Abbey. I wanted to see the place, and what reminded me of it is this week I, I found on my bookshelf a, a little souvenir I had bought from the church showing all the pictures and the outline and who's buried there and the artwork and so forth, and, and it was the church bulletin of that Sunday morning, August 22nd, 1976. And I wanted to see the church. Most of you know it. It's the place where Princess Diana was married. It's the place where kings and queens are installed. And when I arrived, I thought I had maybe missed the service because it was empty. Now, understand, this was once a great church. Men like John Knox, men like Richard Baxter preached in it to thousands of people on Sunday mornings. And I went in. I thought, maybe I got the time wrong. Maybe I'm late. The church just was virtually empty, but I could hear something way down in the front. So I kept walking and walking and got down to the front and then walked to the right and went down a little bit further. And there were these uh, priests of sorts that were dressed up in their little suits and all these altar boys. And, um, and then there was congregants, all 12 of us. I mean, there was more people in the support group, the little choir boys and all the priests than there were actual congregants. And it was really sad. I mean, it was literally a dead church. And by the way, that is a typical Sunday in that place. How sad it is, how depraved Europe has become in ignoring the living God. Now, if you went to Sardis on a Sunday morning it would be a little bit different. It would be filled. And you would think it was alive. You'd think this was a booming church. I mean, this church had a big name. This church had a good name. To put it in 21st century terms, if you went to the city of Sardis and you said, hey, uh, I'm looking for a good church. Oh, I know the first church, first Sardis. That's where you want to go. It's a great church. They have a marvelous ministry there. They're a booming church. That's where you want to attend. Uh, they were enjoying the ordinances. They were hearing the Word of God taught. They were worshiping on the Lord's Day. They were going through all the motions. They had a name that they were alive. But they weren't. The church at Sardis had a reputation that they were alive. But tomorrow we'll see that in reality they were dead. To listen again to today's message, Appearance Without Reality, a look at the church at Sardis, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV8. Tomorrow we continue our look at this church that had a lot going on, but which was really just spinning its wheels. Join us then as we search the scriptures.